Welcome to Day Live by Film, a film discussion podcast focusing on the Criterion channel and beyond. My name is Adam Lundy and I am joined as always by my co-hosts Chris Haskell and Zach Bryant. How are you doing today, guys? Good afternoon. Hello. Good. Good morning to you guys. Good afternoon to me. Um, having a good weekend? We, we record on a Sunday for the listeners, so get out of today anything this weekend at all? I'm drinking, um, I don't know if you recognize this, but this is uh, port, from Port Mary in England. My mom, I don't even know what that is, bro. Oh, for some reason, my mom collects this stuff. It's like, I guess it's like uh, British China. Oh. Maybe, maybe it didn't make its way to Ireland, but um, I'm, drinking, uh, I'm drinking coffee out of this. I, we have a mug in the house left, so uh, <laughs> drinking coffee from Port Mary in England. But no, I'm doing, doing fine. Um, all around good. I can't wait to get into Collection Corner. I, I'm now complete on Action USA on Blu-ray, so I'll be excited to talk about oh, that. Hurry up. <laughs> <laughs> See, my mom collects way more depressing stuff. It's literally depression glass. It was something that was made during the depression, and it has like these complete sets to it. And yeah, it's it's just actually more sad to look at than anything. Yours yeah. is much happier. My mom <laughs> collects fridge magnets from places that she's been or where people from the family have gone. So if anyone ever takes a trip somewhere, you have to buy her a fridge magnet. Next time I travel, I'm just going to send your mom something. And <laughs> she's going to have no idea who I am. I'm just going to send it to her. She'll be really happy either way. <laughs> what? What's the just what is the like uh, criteria for a trip? Like, is it like if you if you kind of drive to a town or is it like a different country? Yeah, it's more so a different country, yeah, or like at least a different city. So, like, you know, if you go to Barcelona or Paris, so even even if you went to Paris and then went to say like Lyon or Marseille, even though it's both France, she would want one from the cities. So, yeah, it's basically if you travel outside of Ireland, she wants a, a magnet from wherever you travel to, basically. That's fun. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not very creative visually, and so I thought my wife just recently got like some tattoos on her arm. They look really nice. They're it's kind of like fine line tattoos. Very kind of floral. They look. They're very pretty. Very delicate. And she was asking me if I was like, what would I get for tattoos? I don't have any right now. And I was thinking about it, and I was like, you know, it'd be kind of cool. Like if I got like a, a globe, and like as we visited countries, get it colored in. And she stopped for like thirty seconds, and she's like, don't ever get a tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> Or no, I think she said, make sure you get my approval before you ever get a tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite, this is just because it was on the chest. There was a guy years ago who uh, went through TSA through the airport and they were going to, he got randomly selected for the bomb test thing and he rips off his shirt because he has a thing and it has the fourth amendment of illegal search and seizure tattooed oh on his chest. <laughs> I was like, that is, the gr- he waited for years to be able to do that. <laughs> That's Jesus. a long play for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we're starting on a super fun and happy note. So now let's get super fucking depressing. Yeah. Uh, the, first, the first film we're going to talk about today is a, a really infuriating documentary by uh, Barbara Koppel. It's called Harlan County, USA. Uh, it came out in 1976. Um now, I know, Zach, you're going to be the expert on this, but I'm just going to sort of just briefly give an intro as to what it's supposed to be about. Um, so I'm just going to go on the IMDb little little blurb things that they have. So a heartbreaking record of the 13 month struggle between a community fighting to survive and a corporate dedicated to the bottom line, uh, basically about uh, mining strikes. Um, I don't know why the blurb doesn't specify that, but um, yeah, mine, mining strikes and yeah this is a really 
at times a really tough watch just because of how angry it, it made me, you know, watching what these people, this local community went through and the, the, the hoops they had to jump through just to get something as, as basic as a fair wage for a, a really tough job like life sort of threatening jobs that's super important but just critically under underappreciated um so yeah this was this was a tough watch for me um i know this kind of hits close to home for you zach because obviously you're from that that area well not specifically this county but you know you're from this this part of the u.s so i'm, I'm curious to know your thoughts first off that's okay uh, yeah, sure. Um, so as you mentioned, I'm from the area. Specifically, I grew up in the Appalachian Mountains in southwest Virginia. So if, for any NASCAR fans out there, if you know Martinsville Speedway, I grew up 20 minutes from that. Um, where I grew up isn't as much on coal mining, but iron mining. But similar issues, maybe a little less black lung, but it's it's been a part of the culture for ever. Uh, the thing I really appreciate about a documentary like this is because it i think a lot of people do ignore these type of areas that deal with this you know mine you know where do people get in this area get their power things have changed obviously now we have more solar and alternative energies um but you know coal is still a big part of my life um that's where a lot of our energy comes from duke power which is the people who were you know causing these horrible strikes because of their mismanagement and abuse or who I pay every month for power. Um, I, Duke Energy is still alive and well and pay them every month. Um, coal mining is still a part thing. And the bad thing about these type of counties is if the mine never dries up or they have to close all the mines, then as much as these people are abused, their livelihoods go out the window as well. So there is no winning. And I really appreciate a documentary like this really discussing that and really giving people who just don't think about it it's not anybody's fault there's nothing to think about because it's you know it's one part of the country but i think it's a real eye-opener for people so I, I enjoyed it a lot um but i'm gonna have to be really careful not to get political in here uh but 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 just for the sake objectively kind of getting started this is ranked as um 600 on the issue pictures uh, which, wow. which you know, I think is a testament to kind of the power of the movie. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I certainly don't have anything to disagree with that. Um, I'm, I'm glad it's been recognized. Uh, Barbara Koppel's had a career as a documentarian, and she's she's made a lot of uh, TV work. She did a documentary on Woodstock, which I think would be interesting, or the the 1994 version of Woodstock, which is very different, <laughs> but something would be interesting. Um, she, she's uh, she's been involved in that 30 for 30 series, which is sort of fun for, for sports fans. It's kind of like the criterion of sports documentaries. I don't know if you've all ever seen those. Um, but yeah, look, I, the, um, I, I, it's just so hard. So I, I was an activist in my younger years. I, I did a lot of protesting uh, back in the early 2000s. There was a lot to protest. I guess there still is. Um, I've kind of calmed down a little bit, but this is the kind of thing that really riles me up. Um, there's a lot of layers to this, right? None of which are good. Like there's the, the profit motive, right? Like they're, they're making decisions based on the stock market, not on human interest. Um, I think that's an interesting topic for discussion. <laughs> I'm doing my best. I think there's, there's the profit motive. I think there's the fact that, uh, you know, Americans just in general 
we stress freedom and independence of the spirit so much, which is great. But the downside is, you know, I think watching this as somebody who's not American, I think a lot of the the liberties that companies take with people's basic human rights is probably kind of confusing. I, I don't know. If, tell me if that's your experience, Adam. But this is one of those things where I just we just have a long history of not paying attention to the human, right? Um, and, and the relationship between the employee and the, and the employer is not great. And this is one, I think, one of the best examples I've seen of that. Um, I, it's a fascinating documentary. I love it. Uh, I, I want more people to see it. And uh, it's, it's very depressing. <laughs> That's like, like it, there's no, you know, it talks about the 12 day strike, but the reality is like, we're getting a glimpse into a lifelong struggle, right? And there's no real ending, which sucks. Yeah, I mean, there's always this sense of progress. Uh, there's quotations there that, you know, okay, well, you can now have mass to, so you don't get black lung. You can now, you know, you now get about four or five vacation days. You now get a sick day every once in a while. But it's always a question, is that really enough? I mean, you know, is it is it ever okay to spend 300 days of the year in a, in a mine, even with the protections? I mean, is that ever okay? Is it, you know, you, even like towards the end, I don't really think there's spoilers here because, I mean, it's a real life thing. Yeah. But, you know, it's like life the guy at the spoilers. end. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's like the guy at the end talking about, like, you know, he, he would like to retire, but even with the deal in place, you know, he can't afford to. You know, I, I just had a, a constructive way of kind of saying what I'm trying to say. If there's ever a business that screams profit sharing for the employees or employee ownership of a company, I feel like it's this one, right? Like, if, if you want to, you know, if you want to risk your, your health, like, here's the risks, right? But good news is every, you know, dollar the company makes, you get a couple pennies, right? Like, and if and and as that goes into the millions and billions, then those pennies become meaningful, right? And I think that there's, I don't know. Yeah. Well, the way they kind of sell it, and I don't think you, uh, I don't think you've watched it yet, Adam. Uh, there will be blood. Not yet, no. There's uh, this is very early in the movie, but it, it's relevant to this. Essentially, the big thing when you know the main character Daniel Plainview, played by uh, Daniel Day Lewis, comes in. He, you know, he talks about to these towns trying to convince them to put an oil derrick in. It's, you know, we're going to give you, we're going to build schools. We're going to build grocery stores. We're going to make this community better than it's ever been if you just let us open up a mine here. And it's very similar to that here. They, they, they in a way, they think they are getting these promises. They are, oh, well, just letting these people in. Yeah, the work's going to be hard, but it's going to be better for my kids. You know, they're going to have a school to go to. They're going to have a future. This this town is going to do great when the reality is <laughs> they're, they're there until the mine's dry and then your town's nothing. Is it and, bad that all I can think of is marriage versus the monorail? <laughs> you know, there's, there's good similarities there. You know, you, that one's a little bit more of a, very expensive scam now that I'm thinking about yeah. it. Yeah. Some <laughs> oh, the Simpsons episode. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, like even from an, an outsider's perspective, um I, I still I still get the people. Like we like we have strikes here in Ireland every now and again. Like my dad's a nurse and you know there's plenty of nurses strikes. My, my some of my friends are now teachers. There's been teacher strikes over the last few years. Now 
strikes in Ireland never get anywhere near this level of sort of heatedness or potential violence because the Irish we just like to repress everything and when we say when when we say we're when, when we say the teachers are going on strike what they really mean is the teachers are not going to work today they're just going to sit at home and do nothing instead um we're, we're not standing outside picketing but um i still get it and I, even though obviously this whole mining aspect doesn't play into my life at all because my, there's no mines in ireland anymore um I don't even recall if there ever was in the first place. I don't remember ever hearing about a mine in Ireland, at least my part of the country. Um, I can still look at this as a blanket for any big company that exploits their workers. Yeah. Regardless of the, the exact circumstance in this film, any sort of, you know, big corporation who, you know, whether they underpay or whether they don't give benefits, don't do, you know, don't pay for sick leave, things as basic as that. You know, I, I've worked for companies before. I work for the company I'm with now, who I won't name, but are look after me very well. But um, companies I worked before this, the job I'm currently in, they, um, you know, they they are awful to their employees. Like you're paying minimum wage, no health benefits, you don't get paid sick leave. And I know people who are still working there. I'm going like, how do you still work for these people when they treat you so terribly? And you know, I'm I'm lucky I got out. And I know the people obviously in in this in this film, they don't really have a choice to get out because you know a lot of them they sort of mining's in their blood. They their father was a miner. They grew up in a mining community. They're a miner. It's it's just that's just their way of life. But I can still look at this and going like, I, I'm so glad that they're taking the fight to the corporation who's trying to exploit them because that's something that so many people need to do and they can't do. So I really respect, you know, the fact that this community took the fight to them. Yeah, but y'all please remind me to talk about the music here, but I want to talk about something first. Yeah, the music is great. I'll definitely, I'll definitely remind you of that. I, okay. I'm not a country guy at all. I've said this to you before, but I really dig the music in this film. Same, same. Uh, but before we get on to that, uh, there's two movies that jumped to mind that I was thinking of while I was watching this. I want to see, uh, I know we all have seen Women in the Dunes, mm -hmm. right? Um, obviously not similar themes, but I think that hopelessness was there in both, right? This kind of never ending work. Um, Women in the Dunes is different because they were captured and sort of forced into this work, I guess. But um, same, same kind of thing, right? Where they were, uh, as long as they worked, they were kind of fed and taken care of for this company that was selling sand by the by the pound for whatever reason maybe making glass or something i forgot if, if we found out what they were doing with it um but then there's another one um oh shoot maybe venezuelan movie i think from the 50s called araya have you all seen that no nope can't say we've even heard of it it's uh uh milestone puts it out milestone put out the release milestone films a beautiful documentary i mean beautifully shot documentary Subject matter is, is is rough, and it's interesting. So it's I, I'm pretty sure it's a, an island off of Venezuela, but I think it's a backed by Venezuela, um, where they have there's this desert, and right at the coast of the desert is sort of some hills, and like that combination of topography makes like these salt mines. It's just like the perfect I guess environmental conditions for for massive amounts of salt. And so this whole island has kind of been built on a salt trade. Um, and you're, if you're a family in that area, like if you're born into that area, 
you, you have a large family and you figure out how to work 24 hour shifts. So there's the people that go overnight and like mine the salt, bring it on shore and sort of like pack it so it dries. And then there's the people that come in the morning and like do something to it to like, I guess, make it a little bit more dry then bring it to another area where it then gets added to a hill and you get paid per um, wheelbarrow of, of salt or basket of, of salt. And as you bring a, I think it's a basket. And as you bring a basket, you get like one token or one coin. And that's your whole life, right? For generations, like that's, and it's 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 salt, which is terrible for your skin, right? There's all there, there's all this talk about open sores, um, in the sun, or at least or overnight, but like you know, 24 hours around this clock, and if you don't work, you just don't get paid, and so it's interesting. Like I, th I was thinking about this, kind of watching Harlan County, and or yeah, I I don't know, I, you know, I, I don't know if there's a major point here other than just to say it was interesting to see like. The, you know the same kind of issue brought up in like different different countries and different areas and um the, the miners in in harlan county didn't necessarily have it that much better uh and we, it just it just feels like this um the, the the core kind of things that we use in everyday lives i don't think a lot of people think about where they come from but um it's it <laughs> based on these documentaries it all seems to be exploitative work exploitative work yeah, and I, you know, it's one thing, and I think, I can't remember who touched on it in our discussion on Reddit, was that there is this assumption that these people, and a lot of them are, uneducated. So mm -hmm. it's feel easier to take advantage of, and mm -hmm. not know that a lot of them don't know their options. A lot of them don't even know how to leave the area, or what they would do if they did, or how to get a higher education, or do any sort of other work. And companies kind of, especially in this time, before the age of internet, and all that other stuff, you know, easy access to stuff. They took advantage of that, you know, the idea that they don't know any better and they'll work because it's either that or starve to death. Yeah. Yeah. Like definitely that idea of hopelessness and, you know, that, that you touched on Chris with mentioning woman in the dunes. Um, and like, obviously we, we said in woman in the dunes, they were forced to do it. They were trapped there. But as you just said, Zach, a lot of, like a lot of people in that area would have felt trapped there, would have felt that they were forced to work because, you know, if you have a guy who's like, you know, it's 55, he left he left school at 14 and working in the mines, you know, what what else is he going to do other than work in the mines, you know? And especially where it's such a specialty, you know, you can teach anybody to work in a mine, but, you know, when you've got that much education about it and you know that much about right. it, it's really hard to feel like you could do anything else because it, like you mentioned, it's really all they know, um, no matter how difficult it is. Mm. Um, now that we're all thoroughly depressed and uh, <laughs> hating the state of the world, I think there was a couple of sweet moments in the film. Um, I, I love the scene between the cop in New York and the people that were protesting in New that York City. Favorite. Yeah, that's great. Um, it was, it was, I thought it was so, such a tender moment to catch where this cop and this guy, this minor were just sharing a moment and like, it felt very genuine. I loved it. Like when he's talking about like, oh, I thought you guys made more than that. And the other one, you know, I like the part where he's like, I'd rather work in a mine than work on these streets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's it's a nice little culture clash. And, I, I, you know, and it's the same thing this movie did. You know, these people just assume they made decent money. You know, you're putting your life on the line. Of course you'd make decent money. Right. 
Right. Um, uh, yeah, good. No, I was just gonna say, but yeah, there's a lot, and there's a lot of humor, like, and I think it comes from a lot from like the residents, you know, there's a very real element to, and especially, you know, being from here, that's pretty accurate. I love how the authenticity of, of it, and that may have just been where the humor comes from me, just how authentic it feels. And, you know, hearing these people, you know, they take light moments, you know, no matter how down and depressed they get, they joke around and, um, there's one that's, <laughs> it's going to be hard to say without sounding racist, but there's one, uh, part where they, t- where, you know, they make a joke towards the, uh, the only black guy there, the only mm-hmm. one. And they're like, yeah, they're talking about, they need to invite more people to these pickets. And it's like, you need to invite some more so you don't stick out so much. And I, you know, it's like, yeah, that's a little racist, but there's an authenticity to that. And the guy at least took it in good fun. And but and they were very protective of him as well. There's a there's a part where one of the um the gun thugs or maybe it was that head guy I can't remember um mm-hmm. and he he said you know get this n word out of here, and the picketers did not take kindly to him to, the, to yep. him saying that they were saying you know he's a better man than you will ever be and everything like that. And I thought that was that was amazing that they that they had such a like they were all they were all brought together by this one cause, no matter who they were, the color of skin, what, whether they were the wives or the workers, they were just all brought together by this one cause. And like the, the one thing that's great about this film, as I'm going to talk about purely as a film now, rather than the, the sort of contents, but the way it was made, and we watched a few different documentaries and, and lots of different styles on, uh, you know, on this, um, on this sort of film club journey that we've been on. And, you have to really hand it to um to Barbara Cottle or Cottle um she captured it with such a such a, such humanity and such realism there was no bells and whistles there was no fancy cuts it was just just there in the moment even something as simple as like getting the camera and the face of I, someone has to remind me of that asshole's name who was like the head sort of thug I was just literally scrolling, trying to find it. Yeah, that that guy who was always just going around, just being an asshole. But like the fact that she, you know that that her camera crew were always getting right in this dude's face, you know, it it, sh- it balls. First of all, you know, easily could get a gun back in their face if they put go put a camera in a gun tug's face. Um, exactly. So balls for for sure. Um, that they that that they were able to do that, and then. Yeah, just just to be able to present that sort of you know humanity on screen was was just fantastic. And I'm I'm sitting here trying to find his name too because I know once I read it I'll know what it is. But the one thing I also liked uh, going on to your point as well is the part at night when we see him with a gun in the truck. There's like a real horror element with that too, and I think it really like you know it it it's a different tone than a lot of the film, but I think it captures like you say you know that slice of it all at once and you know that was one night but it was you know frightening uh for them and they kind of display it that way as well i mean they definitely saved lives by having cameras there right oh absolutely because i mean i think more people i mean what is it i mean there's one guy who does get shot and killed um and you know they make a big point to say that we wouldn't be here sadly if it wasn't for his death but you know, it could have been a whole lot worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so funny. Uh, Wikipedia doesn't have his name, uh, which is crazy. Uh, he said. I'm also name. looking through the. Um, I'm trying. I'm looking through the uh, plot. Um, 
I mean, my question was going to be tied to this guy's name. Has there ever, like, I, I'm trying to remember the last time I've seen a villain so so perfectly portrayed. And it's crazy that this is a documentary. He's a real dude, yeah, and he's so menacing, you know? He's and I almost have to feel like he got arrested for something for the simple fact that I don't know how those work when you're doing documentaries, but usually you have to get sign-offs to use people's faces and stuff like that, right? Mm. So I almost feel like he would have been arrested just to have that as public knowledge and yeah. be able to use his, but I don't know that for sure. I'm speculating because I'm well, there, I was always surprised there was, there was so many people shown. Well, there was that, that one scene where he was, where the, 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 the sheriff sort of was strong armed into having to, you know, arrest him or not, not even arrest him, him, but turn himself into the space. Yeah. Is it, yeah. Well, he's already arresting him. Yeah. Sorry. No, I'm sorry to cut you off. Basil Collins, right? Basil Collins. Yep, that's it. That's the ass hat. Yep, because that's yeah, that's the one they get arrested, the arrest warrant for, and everything. Um, and you know, from my understanding of this documentary as well, this wasn't even what it was supposed to be about. It was supposed to be the murder of the search of the Y, the your oh, Yarborough, where he was murdered, and they that's like such a small part of the documentary, um, and. That's apparently what it was all supposed to be about. And then they just kind of got thrown into the middle of this whole, oh, there's a lot more going on here. Yeah. And there's that, that Lawrence Jones kid that was, yeah. that was killed as well. Yeah, which is crazy. Which, um, you know, this is a, if we're going to go try to do little happy notes here, Harlem County uh, did actually get some, cool representation in the late 2000s, early 2010s because of uh, Justified, because that's where that show takes place, which also ties into your thing about where they were talking about, you know, it all brought them together. That's kind of a big theme of the show is where you have Timothy Oliphant's character, Raylan Givens, and um, Walton Goggins' character, Boyd Crowder, who are on opposite ends of the law. But there is a relationship between them throughout the whole show because as they put it, they duck coal together. You know, he doesn't ever really want anything bad to happen to him simply because they feel like they have that connection from when they were teenagers, which I think rings true. And it's why I love Elmore Leonard, but that's another topic for another day. But I think it's cool that they do get, they have gotten more representation beyond this. That's good. That's cool. There's two things that like, I feel like we should talk about before we, um, when talking about this movie, one is the music, and two is the the role the women play in in the yeah. community. Um, I, I don't know if there's one that y'all want to go first, but I was very impressed with both. <laughs> the music is great, just because it's uh, you, you know, it's that bluegrass, it's folksy, um, but it's all like almost all of it, if not all of it, is protest music. Yeah, like, yeah, you know, sure. you had songs that just straight up name drop Carl Horn, and I'm like, that's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a cool genre of music. Like, uh, I I don't think I've mentioned it on the podcast, but I've definitely mentioned it in in our Discord that, you know, I hate sort of country music. It just it just it just grates me. I don't know why. I don't have any logical reason to not enjoy it. It just it just doesn't just doesn't sit well with me. Yeah. Uh, but I love this. And I suppose this isn't really country music. It's it's more bluegrass and and folk. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that that sort of pr- that protest songs, you know, where they're literally just like straight up naming people or talking about what's going on. You know, that's it's something you don't you don't it's kind of lost in in society now. You, you don't have that like you don't have anyone bringing out a song about, you know, 
the Taliban coming back or, or you know, Amazon. you don't, like I'd or Amazon, Amazon. Yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but it doesn't exist anymore. It's just it's a, it's from a bygone era. The mm-hmm. whole the whole protest song to rally the people behind a cause, you know. I wish I wish more people would do it, but I suppose nowadays it'll probably be like someone like Cardi B dropping a diss track on Donald Trump or something. <laughs> Although saying that there there was a there was a fuck Donald Trump song um, by a, a a rapper called YG. And he literally has a song on, on one of his albums called um, FDT, Fuck Donald Trump. And it's literally the chorus is Fuck Donald Trump. Awesome. <laughs> so I suppose it still exists in, in some capacity, but n- nothing really like what we, we heard in this film. It's like that one woman who just came out and started singing a song she wrote in the 30s when their previous strike happened. Yeah, that and, was an uh, awesome and, scene. I love that. And, yeah, and just because it really showed how the more things change, the more they stay the same sort of idea. Yeah. You know, and it's she could still sing the same song and the same problems are still there. And we could probably they still made music there. They could probably there's probably still some truth there to it. Um, But, yeah, the music's awesome. It makes it very enjoyable. It gives it this personality Um, because, you know, you talked about it's very forward. It's very this is this is what's happening. This isn't we're not going to over edit it like you see a lot of netflix documentaries do this is it but we're going to add a little music because it gives the culture it, it really slices in that culture well yeah <clears throat> yeah it's very literal music which is fun it's like uh it it just feels like you're you're, you're sort of entering into their world a little bit more um i, I don't know i yeah there do, do you know by chance zach and sorry if this is a dumb question but do do you know if that part of the country is more like matriarchal? Is is there any kind of background to how strong the women are, or is that just a nice glimpse into you know how strong women are in general? And this is a nice capture of it. So this is going to be just from my perspective. It's it's from where I've um, yeah. sat. You know, lived here. There there's this idea that traditional women are. I would say meek, you know, they're, they're just there in service of their husbands. And there is, that is a lot of where it comes from, you know, they're in service of the breadwinner, they're in service for their children. But the, the part I don't think gets a lot of shown is that means fighting as hard as you can for them. Like the idea that my husband's going through this and I'm going to be there front of the line because he may not be able to, or he may not have time to, he may, you know, have other things he needs to do. We need to be that support system. So, you know, traditional values, however everybody feels about it, that's fine. But that, I think that is where a lot of it comes from, this idea that they need to be there and they need to take forward action. And it's almost like uh, the idea of army wives, you know, women whose husbands are in the military and they kind of get together because they have that common problem and they have to build strength from one another. And that's I feel like it's kind of similar here as well, that all their husbands are going through the same thing. We need to try to change this because they won't. You said army wives, but all I was thinking of before was like in like gangster movies when all the gangsters' wives were always together. So that's army wives probably a better analogy to use. <laughs> <laughs> but similar, yeah. yeah it's the idea yeah, that, the, the you know, yeah. Wives. <laughs> there's, there's that one woman who had a gun like in her brassiere and she was like, she was like, you know, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go fight fire with fire. Oh yeah, like these women were badass, you know. Um, like even though they weren't working in the mines themselves, you know, it was their husbands, their brothers, their fathers, 
uh, they weren't going to take any shit. They weren't going to see, you know, their their men disrespected by the system. Um, but, so, and you know, they're the ones who respect. wash the the coal dust off their clothes every day. They're the ones that mend their wounds. They're, you know, they see it firsthand. Um, yeah. While one side, you know, if you go to the mine every day, you're like, oh, that's just part of it. The other person's cleaning up after it, and you know, there's only, you know, if you're not getting anything out, if they're not getting anything out of it, you're not getting anything out of it. So, it's all in there together, sort of idea. It was awesome. Yeah, it was powerful. I mean, a lot of times they were fighting harder than the men, right? Maybe the, mm-hmm. I, don't whether, I don't know the, the reason necessarily, but there's it was kind of hinted that they were just more resolute and stronger towards this cause. Like, oh yeah, yeah they'd call out people for not being on the picket lines and yeah. everything. They'd be the first ones to call it out because they're the ones getting about ran over. <laughs> it's fascinating. Yeah, I guess it was just a real. It was a true like community. Right. They were they were like everybody was fighting for the betterment of the community. And like four four women that were like washing their baby in a tub with cold water because they didn't have hot water coming into the house, things like that. Yeah, and then there's like uh there's a couple scenes where, you know, they they you know, they talk to Carl Horn or whoever and there's like, Oh yeah, well we don't have the housing, you know, we're working towards getting them better housing. We're gonna get them better housing. And it's like, no, you're not. Like that's not true. You're not working towards it. That's just for the press. And then there's oh well, we have this doctor who will sit there and tell you black lung that's such a small percentage. You're not gonna get black lung. It, yeah. absor- having coal dust in your lungs is not bad for you. Oh my gosh. <laughs> The way that he said it, he also kind of sounded like a villain. He was something like, there's been no definitive proof or something like that. Mm-hmm. And you're like, just use your eyes, man. What are you talking about? <laughs> like, I mean, these, you know, when you, you know, you look at this guy, like one guy said he was 67. I was like, he's about my dad's age. And my dad, you know, my dad worked in asbestos and textile too, but he looks a whole lot better than that guy does. That guy looks like someone who's 80. Yeah. Yeah. And that's all you really need to see. Like I know medicine's gotten better in 50 years, but that that's not normal. <laughs> but it's, yep. it's, it's, it's not as if it even changes really. I don't know. I know we always take the piss out of um, Netflix documentaries, but uh, <laughs> there was one that uh, my girlfriend watched recently and I was sort of in the same room and I ended up, I ended up watching it as well. Um, I don't know if you guys had heard of it called the devil. We know. Yeah. Yeah. About the tech, about the Teflon. Mm-hmm. Um, about how sort of damaging sort of Teflon was to the workers who were working on it and how lawyers and medical people were straight up lying about the negative effects of Teflon until it started affecting their kids and everything like that. Wow. Um, so, and this is, this is, this happens after, you know, well after the events of Harlan County. So it just goes to show the, the, the sort of the wheel of, of corporate lies never stops turning. I, well, like, um, my dad, he talks about all the time, you know, he started doing textile work in the 60s, late 60s. And, uh, you know, he talked about, he's like, I was the one who put the asbestos in. And 30 years later, I'm the one removing it. And they didn't give us masks when we started. Like, they, you know, it was just, hey, remove the asbestos. Wow. And, you know, of course, he got lucky. Nothing. He didn't have adverse effects to it. But, um, of course, now they all wear masks and stuff because they demanded for it. But, <laughs> Because those masks aren't very expensive anyway. It's like, just give it to them. I mean, it's it's kind of happening today with, with, with football, right? With American football, right? Like, it's it's sort of happening today with concussions. There's so many people that were trying to hide the real effects of concussions. And you have people that have, like, taken their lives through the chest. Yeah. Yeah, so that, you, so that they can study his brain. 
and see the damage that these concussions cause. I mean, it's sort of this cycle again, not to end up, you know, not to have like a, this depressing note, but like when there's billions of dollars on the table, people tend to gloss over some of the health stuff, right? The big wigs don't really take into account what's happening at the very bottom. You know, as long as their checks are getting cut, then who gives a shit? Another brick in the wall, right? Yeah. Yeah, and it's hard. Like the people that are running these companies aren't the ones that are doing the 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 sport or the activity in this case, right? The mining in this case. So there's just that like sort of uh, uh, academic like separation between like, oh, okay, well we'll we'll increase like we'll improve like percentages of their health over time. But, you know, I guarantee if any of those executives spent two months in the mines, all that stuff would be changed in the second, right? So, yeah, anyway, that separation, I think, is a cause of a lot of it. It becomes just more of a thought exercise. Like, oh, it's interesting that those concussions are, they do seem damaging. We should look into that, you know, and then it never happens. All right, welcome back to Collection Corner. Uh, Feels a little weird to jump into consumerism right after that topic, but here we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, uh, I I guess I'll start off if that's okay with y'all. I um, there's there's a couple things to talk about. Um, I, I buy so so M MVD has kind of taken over as the distributor of a lot of these boutique companies that we love so much. They're they have a lot of the warehouses and a lot of the distribution of them, and they have their own line of of sort of. 80s and early 90s uh, sort of fun kind of you know cheesy action movies that they they put out and kind of called MVD Rewind. Are they the guys who did Rad, that one about the BMX guys. Did they have a copy of Rad? You know, as I actually think that was Vinegar Syndrome and then Mill Creek. I think. I'm but, certain I saw. Maybe maybe I saw that they were selling it. Then that's my that's probably. Yeah, my guess, I mean they have it does get a bit confusing because they they pub they release basically like. Aero video, like most people that we know goes through MVD when it comes into the U.S. Fair. Um, but um, they, um, they, they, so they have 30 movies under their MVD Rewind uh, label, I guess, that have slipcovers. And look, once a year they have a sale. So for, for a couple of years now I've, I've kind of bought, and when they do a sale, they're like five bucks, six bucks. It's great. So uh, with the with the most recent sale, I'm now complete on MVD Rewind. The last two titles uh, that I needed were Action USA, which I'm excited. I also get to bring this up on a, on another podcast, <laughs> uh, as well as Drive, which is not at all like um, uh, Beverly Hills Cop, and not at all like um, uh, what's the one with Jackie Chan and uh, Chris Tucker. And uh, Rush Hour. Oh, sure. yeah. And I assume it's not the original version of the Ryan Gosling, Nicholas Winding, Reffin film either. It's also called Drive. Unrelated. Unrelated. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so I, so I, I'm going to do, I'm on my, um, I think, I don't know if y'all know this or not. I don't know how much, I, I probably talked about it before, but I pick like a boutique label that's like smaller and sort of go through all the releases and do like a short write-up on it on boutique Blu-ray sub. And I'm just finishing up with Massacre Video now because they only have 10 releases. So I finished up with them. Uh, I have one more to go. But then after that, I think I'm going to do MVD Rewind just because I'm complete. I'm debating between them or AGFA. They have pretty much the similar amount of releases. Um, but MVD puts them out a lot slower. So I'll probably do do that. Those AGFA guys are prolific. They put out like one or two a month. So the, the collection's building faster. Um, 
Then the next thing for me I'm working on is Arrow Academy is kind of done now, right? Like they're, they're merging it back into just Arrow films um, or Arrow video. So I'm about probably two, one to two sales away from being complete on that. Because same thing, MVD, MVD uh, uh, website, the, the e-commerce site, will have a sale once a year on Arrow stuff. So I always pick up the Arrow uh, Academy line there. Um, and same thing, it's like six or seven bucks every title, which is nice. So I think I've got about two sales left to go on that. So that I'm hoping to talk about that soon. But uh, yeah, that's me. What, what are y'all? Uh, what are y'all looking at? Just before I talk about mine, I'm looking at MVT Rewind. These are some of the shittest films I've ever heard of <laughs> that are getting these fancy releases. There's a film here called Went to Coney Island on a Mission from God, Be Back by Five. Okay, yeah, I'm so glad. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> so, I don't think they have a great identity as a label. Like, in the middle of all these action movies, there's stuff like that. There's these random, like, kind of family films that they put out that don't make any sense. This my samurai, okay, double impact. You know that's a that's iconic. Yeah, you know, it, it tends to be but. these like labels that like their trashy cinema that do some of their best work. I mean, when you really look at like what Vinegar Syndrome does, what Massacre Video does, what uh, um, Blue Underground does. I mean, they put so much work into these titles that mo like ninety nine point nine and Affinity people haven't even heard of or watched. <laughs> But they put all the passion and work into it. Like, yeah. um, just stuff. Yeah. Like, you know, like, what what is some uh, Vinegar Syndrome's done? I mean, their 4K collection stuff has been like Beastmaster, which is probably one of their most well, <laughs> you know, one of the most well known titles they even have. But then they'll do something. What's that? What is it? Six String Samurai? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which I don't know if I've ever met a person in real life who saw it before that came out. <laughs> but they put so much work into that uh, 4K release. Which well, I think's great. There's an interesting thing with Vinegar Syndrome, right, where because they're sort of limited, Mondo Macabro has a similar issue, right, because Mondo Macabro has those red cases, but they only produce like 500 copies of the red case, then they put it in a standard case. Mm -hmm. If you want to go complete on the red case for Mondo Macabro, or if you want the limited edition from Vinegar Syndrome, uh, you have things like right now, if you want to get a copy of the original Blood Hook, which is a super obscure horror movie from the 80s, right? Vinegar Syndrome release, it's, I think it might be numbered, but either way, there's only like a couple hundred copies, that 300 copies or something like that. It's like 300 bucks. <laughs> right? And that movie's not worth 300 bucks, and I like Bloodhook. <laughs> yeah. I, I, re- I respect the hustle, you know, but Jesus Christ, I'd never, I would never buy, let alone watch any of these films, you know? It, it, it's an interesting case for streaming, right? Some of the, like, let's say that there's, there is a physical copy, but there's only like 300 copies of it. And for whatever reason, they're not, probably because it's not that popular, no one else is putting it out. Like, that's probably a good case for streaming, right? It costs a lot less to throw it up on a streaming site, and just get some, some recurring revenue from having like a thousand titles. You know, Thank and God it, for Tubi. Tubi? Tubi right? yeah. yeah. Tubi puts out stuff like Even, that all the time. Like even showing it up on like Apple TV for a dollar ninety nine or something, you know, there's a lot of like I, I look on the Apple TV sales like once a week that they have up and they'll have like, you know, less than two, less than three. And I look in them and it's just like the most garbage films that, that are not like the sort of format for like when you look at titles on like Apple TV, which obviously was formerly iTunes and um, they'll all be in this like this nice rectangular format. And like I'm talking about, they have sales on films that are not even formatted right for the image 
that it advertises. <laughs> like it's like it's like completely misshapen. So like there's pure garbage that is thrown up on there to hopefully get a few a few books in. Um, uh, well, uh, just to move on to mine, then I'm sorry to like go from one one sort of aspect to another and go super highbrow. I didn't really have anything to kind of that I've bought of note recently to talk about for Collection Corner. So I thought I'd just bring up the um, probably the biggest boutique news of the whole year. Um, Criterion finally going 4K, um, which I know Zach will be happy about because he fucking finally end the good fight. Uh-huh. Yeah, I feel vindicated. <laughs> yeah. Um, so people, if you've somehow listening to this and you didn't hear, uh, Criterion are going 4K starting with a couple of releases in November. They have announced their sort of full slate of what will eventually all be going 4K for now. And I'm sure they'll be announcing more. Um, so their initial announcements of a six-film slate is Menace of Society, The Piano, Mulholland Drive, The Red Shoes, A Hard Day's Night, and then most crucially, Citizen Kane. I think, I honestly think the (laughs) reason why they haven't gone 4K earlier is because they were probably fighting tooth and nail for Citizen Kane because there is no better way to announce changing format than picking what is widely considered to be one of, if not the greatest film ever made. You know, if they had just announced it, like if you look at that slate without Citizen Kane, you have a lot of like a lot of great films. The Red Shoes is in my top, both Mulholland Drive and The Red Shoes are in my top 10. Um, and I'm especially excited for The Red Shoes in 4K. That's going to look absolutely insane. Um, but it doesn't have the same draw as like Citizen Kane. You know, it's it's just one of those. It's just one of those films. It's like a, it's like a Mount Rushmore of films. Like that's one of the heads, you know. So that's probably why they delayed it because they were probably fighting hard to get the rights. Yeah. Um, but yeah, what a what a way to announce going 4K. And I think I'm looking forward to seeing what goes 4K next because like there's already a lot of films on Criterion that need to go Blu-ray before they even think about going 4K. Like a lot of Kurosawa stuff, a lot of Otsu stuff. It's in really bad shape. Um, so you'd hope that perhaps if there's new prints available. Um, which this is going to be dictated on. Like as soon as studio, as soon as as soon as it was announced at Cannes that Mulholland Drive had gotten a new 4K, um, a new 4K print that that debuted at Cannes this year, I just knew that was going to be announced as well. Criterion 4K because it's about like a lot of the time Criterion themselves are not doing the restoration; they're getting the rights to a restoration of somebody else's done. You know, whether it was done by the Film Foundation or something like that, it's it's not always Criterion themselves doing it. Mm-hmm. So now that a lot of 4K scans are becoming available, I would hope that a lot of more, a lot more 4K will come out, and a lot of films maybe that hadn't gone Blu-ray can now go 4K if a better scan becomes available. Yeah, I I, I definitely agree that probably the reason they waited was for Citizen Kane because the only other explanation I kept hearing was it's not financially viable. And I'm like, but somehow Blue Underground and Vinegar Syndrome make it financially oh, yeah. viable. And <laughs> they're no much smaller labels. Like, 100%, 100%. Yeah, that was that was never the right answer. Criterion are probably the biggest boutique, you know, Blu-ray company out there. Maybe Arrow would be a little bit behind, but like Criterion are probably the most household name of boutique, of boutique Blu-rays. So yeah, definitely, definitely not the case. Yeah, and as much people give them crap for the, the the cover art, 
the fact is people are going to buy it. Like, it's going to fly. Oh, yeah, I'm going to buy it. I've been I like, I, I like the cover art. <laughs> oh. I, like, I like the K. I like it a lot. I think it's just, it's simple and classy. Heard it here first. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess for me, like, I don't hate it. And it, it's all going to depend on, like, the packaging. Like, if it ends up being a nice package and maybe it's like, because I thought Mirror was kind of a dumb one. But in person, I actually think Mirror looks pretty good. Like, yeah, uh, it looks nice in yeah. person. I, I got that in as well a couple of weeks ago when it came out here on Region B. And yeah, I really like the packaging as well. Yeah, me. and you know, I, I feel like it could be the same sort of thing. But it's just like, it's a like <laughs> as vindicated as I am, it's like, okay. Like, maybe maybe my expectations were too high, but I'm like, that's the announcement. Okay, cool. It's Citizen <laughs> Kane, at least. But like you said, I'll be there day one to buy it. So how much can I complain? <laughs> What have you been watching or buying, Zach? Um, the last thing I bought, and I'm still waiting for it to come in. It's currently in New York. I uh, ordered from BFI website for the first time and got the Her- their Herzog collection. Nice. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's, it's a good collection. Yeah. Um, I had a hard time because both them and Screen Factory put out a, a, a Herzog collection. And they have a lot of overlap, but a lot of differences as well. Like, Screen Factory's packaging, I think, is a lot nicer. Um, it looks, I think, it looks better. Um, and but the thing that was really the deciding factor is the transfers for Aguirre, The Wrath of Man, and Nosferatu, The Vampire, are apparently trash through Screen Factory. Like their transfers are terrible, and BFIs are fantastic. So I was like, well, that's like eighty percent of the reason I'm buying this set. So I guess I'll just get the BFI one for now. But it seems nice. It's got a lot of cool special features. It's got a lot of movies. I haven't got to explore Herzog a lot. I've watched a few of his things. Um, so I'm just kind of curious because I know he's kind of divisive through people I've talked to if they like him or not. So I'm excited to check it out. He's a he's a strange director in a way, like because he doesn't really fit in the character, uh, the category of like your standard sort of film film buff director in a way because i think it's because he's kind of for for some strange yeah well he's insane obviously but (laughs) like for some reason he just he just gets overlooked a lot like a gear aguire aguire i don't know how to pronounce it the the wrath of god film that's a great film and it's really really well made there's a shot at the end and at the start actually that the film kind of bookends on these two incredibly well constructed uh Mm -hmm. shots um but then like he makes he makes a lot of documentaries obviously is kind of what he be, he's more known for in the mainstream audiences it would be his documentaries right. and then he makes a lot of like weird crap films as well and then he like shows up in cameos and stuff like he he cameos in parks he was in an episode of parks and recreation and the mandalorian and he was in the mandalorian he did a voiceover job for rick and morty you know he just he, he's an he's just an odd guy and i think that's kind of what he's kind of disrespected in a way just because he doesn't conform to the the auteur sort of role he doesn't he doesn't he doesn't stick to where you know what he's good at necessarily he does he's not afraid to go off the path and i'm gonna kind of he's he's not kind of like a david lynch where like lynch sticks in his niche and rarely deviates from it and he's really good at it i'm not shitting on david lynch one of my favorite directors he's really good at his niche and he sticks to it and he's not divisive because he sticks to his niche, except for that, except for the weirdly weird thing where he sometimes does voiceover work for Seth MacFarlane and Family Guy. And he was a recurring character on the Cleveland show as himself, Swami. as a barman. 
that, that's like the kind of weirdest thing. And this is, I, I kind of sounds weird for saying this about David Lynch, but doing that is probably the weirdest thing David Lynch himself has ever done. <laughs> do weird voiceover work for Seth MacFarlane. Um, but other than that, he sticks in his niche, whereas Herzog doesn't. He just he just does whatever the fuck he wants. Yeah, uh, and he gets kind of. I think he's kind of disrespected because of that. Honestly, the big reason I wanted to get the set is because I was like listening to like some different trivia on uh, Wrath of God, which I have not seen. So this is going to be all new for me. Um, but I've heard it's great. Um, and his relationship with Klaus Kinski, which I'm sure plenty of people yeah. know, but just like little things like it was too loud, so uh, Kinski shot into the tent and like shot a uh, a person's finger off and. Um, Herzog, him nuts, threatening but... to leave set and Herzog saying, "I'll shoot you and myself if you walk off set." And it's they like were, they they were so toxic. They were so. <laughs> there like, um... was like, I think it was true. I think he would have shot me. <laughs> I have the DVD version of the set. Like I, I, I literally had the DVD version of the exact same BFI set for mm-hmm. a good ten years. Um, it was one of the first like sets I ever got. Um, and I don't even think I bought it. I'm pretty sure I like borrowed it off someone and I never gave it back. I, I can't even remember how I got my hands on it. What but there was, a, there was a document. <laughs> I know. Um, there was a documentary on the DVD version about their relationship. Does that right. is that also on the Blu-ray version too? I believe it was when I was comparing the special features. I, yeah. I seem to remember that. It's a great watch, that doc. Yeah. It's, they, they, they were just so fucking toxic. But... <laughs> But they, it just, it, it brought the best of them. It's literally like their relationship, you know, their, their chemistry will be, it'd be like if Robert De Niro and Martin Scorsese fucking hated each other and wanted each other dead, but they still were really great working together. That, that's basically how you can compare Kinski and, and Herzog. They fucking hated each other, but they, it just, it just all came together on the screen. Well, from what I've also heard about their relationship was just like, Kinski was always a little unhinged and Herzog was kind of the subtly unhinged one like he he could at least appear normal while kinsky was kind of really out there and angry and so they said that's kind of how kinsky got was why he respected herzog is because he kind of felt they were kind of the same and that's not a good thing based on everything else (laughs) maybe this is a different episode but i kinsky's work in spaghetti westerns is some of my favorite uh like he's been in some fantastic spaghetti westerns that dude was all over the place. He's, he's such an interesting guy. I'm just going to – I know he's passed away now. My assumption is he died of a heart attack. I don't know why, but that's just like the the feeling I get from him with all that anger. An angry – I would assume he would like die from like fighting a tiger or something. Like it's one or the other. There's no middle ground. <laughs> yeah, he's, he either died like peacefully from like a heart failure or something, you know, in a sleep, or he was like coked off his head fighting a tiger. <laughs> <laughs> there is there is no middle ground. I'm just looking. It doesn't have his uh, his cause of death. Maybe maybe it's too crazy. Oh, like sudden heart attack. Yeah. <laughs> I knew sudden it. heart attack. There we go. I mean, it's not funny, but yes, you're perfect. <laughs> <laughs> R.I.P. Dude. <laughs> All right, and welcome back. Now we're going to be talking about. Solilo uh, by Med Hondo. Uh, this movie is uh, shot over four years with a very low budget. Tells the story of a black immigrant who makes his way to Paris in search for his Gaul ancestors. This manifesto denounces a new form of slavery. The immigrants desperately seek work, a place to live, but find themselves face to face with indifference, rejection, humiliation until the final call for uprising. Um, 
yeah, so I just found out Letterboxd's descriptions are way too long, so I'm not going to do that anymore. But, uh, Chris, what did you think of the movie? I uh, So the, the whole movie for me would have been I, – I would have loved it just simply at the image of in the beginning where the, the uh, I guess the Brit- or French soldiers come in. Or no, it's not even the soldiers. It's the church comes in and sort of baptizes everybody. And they're carrying crosses and they turn them over and make them swords. Um, that image alone, I was like, sold. I love this movie. Like just from like the, the, the economy of storytelling, like, like just the, how, how much is, is told through that image. Um, I, uh, and I love the final scene where he sort of, it's, I mean, I know we're, there's a lot to talk about, but uh, is it okay? I mean, there's no spoilers in this movie, right? Is that, can we? It's weird enough that you can't really spoil it. Okay, great. And so I love this scene where he sort of tried French culture and sort of goes back to the wild in a weird way and a little bit more of like a kind of carnal sort of state where the movie ends. Um, but So maybe this is the more experimental parts of the films. I just loved the way that Ned Hondo did that and sort of used that. Um, and I love the, the way when I, when I was describing this movie, I said it's sort of a tale of two movies that were kind of woven together. It's like this very experimental kind of filmmaking when he's in Africa or connected to Africa. I think it's Mauritania, is that right? Uh, Mauritania, yeah. Okay. And then there's the French New Wave style of filmmaking when they're in France. Um, and I, I loved both. I thought it was very clever. I, I can't wait to dig into this with you all a little bit more. Um, just for uh, grounding this in they shoot pictures, it was ranked 3283. Disgraceful. Um, which feels way too low. Yeah. Disgraceful. Disgraceful ranking of this film. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. shambles. So I'm, I'm sure there's so much more to talk about. Um, uh, so let's just let's just keep going, Adam. What about you? The most important thing about this whole film is the fact that the print that we watched was funded by George Lucas. i'm not even shitting you it was um i I was so surprised to see george lucas family foundation show up at the start um no um in all seriousness i i absolutely adored this film um last year i got super into um african cinema from this sort of 60s and 70s and i just love how they took the they took a lot of what the french new wave were doing at that time especially godard and they just they made it more radical, you know, while yeah. also being super enjoyable and not as head up its own assy is kind of the best way. Pretentious, yeah. I suppose, probably a better word. Um, a lot of a lot of Goddard can be super pretentious and very, um, very what's the word? Just very heady and hard to sort of break down. Whereas what this film and what of a lot of other films from this era from African filmmakers like Black Girl from Simben and Tukibuki from um, Diop, um, they are just as radical from a filmmaking standpoint. Um, they have a lot of the same absurdity, but there is a real political bite that, that you get um just because so much of the film just comes from an outsider's perspective and how how you know that's how sort of post-colonialism affects them um they're they're sort of a, they're left in a no man's land between their old culture and the new ways honestly i could my, my review for this film was probably the longest i'd written in in, in a long time 
because there's, there's so much that you can talk about and so much i loved about this film and and just african cinema this era in general just they they all they all do very similar things in terms of how they portray the sort of post-colonial world um I, i'm at a point where i don't even really know where to start because i can say so much about it um one one thing i'll bring up before we go too deep um when I was watching this, there, like you said, Chris, there's so many different styles throughout this film, and it feels like different films at times. And I was able to pull through just like so many different nuances from different styles that I was noticing. And in my review, I basically wrote that Medhondo is able to combine Goddard's radicalism, Fassbinder's outsiderism, just Ooh. in terms of like how the film was made. Uh-huh. Sam Ben's racial commentary, obviously coming from the black perspective. And then there's also a lot of Bunwellian satire. Mm. In one scene in particular that I will talk about at some point was extremely Bunwellian, would not have been out of place in something like um, the, you know, the, that bourgeois one that has a too long of a name. Just the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie, yeah. Yeah. Um, that one. It wouldn't have been out of place, something like that. Um, but yeah, love this film. Loved every aspect of it. I, I rated four and a half stars. I don't know why. It's a five star film. It's 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 an amazing it's an amazing picture. It's it automatically jumped into my top ten for films we've watched in this film club. And the more I think about it, the more I love it. And it'll probably could even jump into the top five. Um, amazing, amazing picture. Um, I I enjoyed it. It was a lot different. Like when I read the description after it won, I was because uh, just for perspective for anyone, I don't actually read what the movies are about before I vote for them. I just see which one has the coolest title and I click on that one, <laughs> and then and then I read whichever one wins. Yep. Um, so this one I was like, okay, so I, I kind of get what's going for, and the tone and the style was a lot different than I expected. Which was which was nice. I, I think that it got me a lot more attracted to what was going on, um, and it it almost comes off as like a little bit of like different vignettes, not in a traditional sense, but in the idea that almost like there, you know, we're talking about the immigrants' perspective, the refugee perspective, however you want to put it, and it's different things that. I guarantee any country that has had to deal with refugees at some point or immigration has unwillingly thought or said something that was here and didn't realize what you had said. I think that, I think there is a great thing here of ideas and one that stuck out to me, especially with something I've heard throughout my life that you don't really think about is, is fetishism. You know, there is the um, part where the girls are talking about, you know, being with uh, someone who's African and it oh, yeah. becomes a, the idea of what's the difference between preference and, and fetishism. And that is kind of what it tackles. But there's so many little vignettes that do things like that. And I think it's really interesting. And I think it helps cause like a decent amount of introspection if this is something you have thought about or dealt with in some area. I, you, you mentioned uh, that I, I thought that was great. You, you know, I guess the thing that jumps out to mind, Zach, when you say that is sort of like the um the rawness and like of the honesty of this film like the way that people are talking i just for for you know i guess maybe marrying uh, somebody who's an immigrant I, or or just generally in my life just kind of had a lot of friends who are immigrants this just perfectly captures a lot of their experiences like that i mean i i, you, I don't know if you could make a film that more perfectly captures the experience of of coming into a new country 
I think the aspect of colonialism makes it even more sort of uh, complex and, and maybe painful for the people that are there because it's just a very confusing message, right? Well, you came in, you colonized us and you invited us to France, but then like, you don't want us. Like you're, we're sort of caught in this, like, what do you, what do you want from us? Right? Like, why are you, why are you like in control over our country? If you don't want to like, what do you want? Like, it doesn't make sense. Right? So it brings a very human perspective from this side who's <clears throat> being colonized of, of, of like, no, we're peers in this. Like, you know, the main character is this intelligent, educated. Um, he's trying to be a financial like accountant, right? He's, he keeps getting jobs for like, like as a purse person or like an accountant, right? I think he's a, I think he's a teacher by trade. I think it's mentioned, but you know, the film is abstract enough that it doesn't really tell you exactly, but uh, he's educated anyway. I think at some point someone mentioned he was a teacher. Maybe I'm mixing it up with a, with a different character, but yeah, he's, he's, he's an educated person. He's trying to get a, a, a good job. So it's not like he's coming over just to do manual labor or anything like that. Like in his mind, he's peers with everybody in France, right? Like he sees yeah. a job opening and he's like, oh, cool. I have this skill. Like I'll go apply for this job. And he doesn't really understand the racism until it's sort of just like perpetuated again and again and again. Right. So finally he internalizes that they see him as different, but like, that's not how he comes over there uh, really seeing it. Right. He comes in much more optimistically, I think in the beginning of the film. Yeah. And, and this happens as well in black girl. I don't Have you guys seen black girl? I know yeah. that. Oh, I, oh, I know that I know that you saw Baram Sarat. Um, remember, I think yeah. we watched that. I think, yeah, um, it's by the same director, Usman Senben. Incredibly, incredible director. Um, but uh, his film Black Girl kind of encapsulates that as well. And I won't go too far, too far off the beaten track here, but um, I think it, a lot of themes in Black Girl are, are visible here too. Um, but the, the 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 plot of Black Girl is she is a Senegalese woman who was hired to be a nanny for a white family and she's brought to France and she's can't wait to go to France and explore the city and she's going to have a great time. But instead she's locked in the house all the time. So she's just uh, literally just to be the childminder, house cleaner, yeah. cook, chef. She's eventually roped into doing everything when she was just supposed to just be a nanny and she would have her own free time. And she's essentially yeah. made a slave in the house. So I, I think it tells a sort of similar story to how the main character who isn't named in this film uh, how the sort of expectations he has when he also goes to France that it's going to be, you know, he's going to a new life, a new great life for himself. And in yeah. fact, he, he he ends up, you know, just as sort of wor sometimes even worse off than what he would have been, you know, if he had just stayed in Africa. Um, but you, you mentioned, Zach, about the different vignettes and stuff. And yeah, this film is definitely broken into that. There's no sort of straight story of A to B. It's definitely sort of broken into different vignettes. And there's a there's a few in particular that I thought were really, really powerful and complex and really sort of struck me. Um, the first one, which again is another sort of theme you find in African cinema of this time, is how even black people who have immigrated and have been there and managed to integrate into the white society then turn against immigrants and other black people who have come to France. Mm -hmm. um, in Baram Surat, we saw that, Chris, when he goes to the, to the, when, when the, the, the driver of the, of the cart driver goes to the rich part of town yeah. and he gets scammed by another black person and something very similar happens in Mandabi, which is also by Usman Semben. Um, but we see it here in this really incredible sort of little, it's almost not even a vignette himself, just all the small little sequence where these two black men are, are arguing on the street over something I can't even remember. And one of them says to the other, he holds out his arm and goes, look, my skin is, is lighter than yours. Go yeah. home, N-word. Yeah. You know, he's just he's saying this to him, but 
because he has integrated into society, he feels that he is now better than this other person. And it's kind of like I, I mentioned it in my review that, you know, one thing that was really bed into us in history class was the reason why the Irish were so easy to conquer was because we were always fighting and amongst ourselves, all the clans were always fighting. So it was just easier for someone to come in and take over us. And you get this vibe from this film, too, that, you know, tribalism in African nations was the reason why they were so easy to conquer and colonize, because in Africa, it's not as simple as you're all from Nigeria or you're all from Senegal. It's yeah. also tribal. It's, there's tribes within that yeah. who will not like other tribes and therefore they'll be easy to conquer. Uh, and we see that. I think that's what's demonstrated at the start of the film when you mentioned, Chris, when they turn the crosses into swords and they all start fighting one another with these swords while the white guy stands above them looking down. Yeah. You know, it's it's a perfect symbolism for that infighting, creating a, a much easier to conquer society. Um, yeah. And then there's there's two other small videos that I want to sort of highlight that were really powerful to me. Um, I think actually one of them features in the one that you mentioned, Zach, about the woman who was wondering what it was like to be with a black man. One of those women then goes and approaches the main character and they're sort of, you know, getting handsy on the street. They're sort of kissing and he has his arms around her and everything like that. And all the this is obviously shot on a real street. and <laughs> The people's faces are, are like, it's just crazy, like looking at the disgust and uh, yeah. like at seeing a black man with a white woman. And, you know, this is pretty straightforward. It's pretty straight laced. But then Hondo does something really ingenious where he plays the sound of animals and almost like zoo mm-hmm. animals or farm animals over this scene. And you think about it as like, why is he playing animal sounds? Then you realize that this is like a spectacle to these people. It's like something in the in a zoo. Yep. They're they're not looking at two people embracing. They're looking at a spectacle at this sort of odd thing where this ma- this black man is with a white woman. Um, and then the one that I sort of highlighted before this uh, very Bunwenil bun- scene sort of hand uh, happens toward the end where he's having sort of lunch with that French family. And it starts off super normal. And the next oh, thing, oh, yeah. those asshole kids start jumping on the table and kicking the food and ruining everything. And the parents just very bemused by all of this. And as the main character is just distraught by the fact that this, these people are so wasteful with their food. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, this honestly, I could talk about so many, <laughs> so many scenes in this film. It's just they're just it's just such a powerful watch. One that stuck out to me was when the guy with the guitar goes to play music in the bar. Um, Great scene. And there's, yeah. the, and there's that part where he mentions that the bartender tells him, "Don't play too loud. Play softly, uh-huh. so people don't, you know, because clapping attracts the police." Which is an interesting thing in France because that's kind of a big cultural thing, or at least it used to. I don't know if it still is. I just know it from Marie Antoinette since we were talking about Copula, um, but. <laughs> Um, it's that idea that, you know, obviously this guy wants to go kind of do something from his, his passion, his culture, which is go and play for people. And he's kind of going to assimilate, assimilate, is that uh, assimilate himself to, um, what they want. And there's almost like this tension brought in a thing. Cause every time he gets a little bit louder, you're like, this is going to end so badly. And that's at least that's how I took the scene the whole time. Like every time he got a little bit louder, I was like, oh, don't do that. (laughs) But luckily it does end a little bit happier than expected in a way. Yeah, the patrons do seem to end up enjoying, especially the guy who was giving out about black people at the bar. 
even he kind of got into it at the end, which was yeah, because nice. I think he says something like you have to explain it to them like they're children. I yeah, yeah, he was, yeah, he was, yeah, he was, yeah, he was, yeah, I can't remember yeah, exactly what he was saying, but yeah, he was, he wasn't very nice to black people at the start of the scene, but he kind of got into it. But I, I suppose at the same time, though, maybe there's a nuance to that, and maybe he doesn't, he still doesn't look at him as a person, but more as a performer. Yeah, it's kind of like that argument where people who are like racist are still like big sports fans and they'll follow like their favorite NFL team. And you're like, well, half that, at least if not more than half that team is black. So like, why, why, how can you be racist when like your favorite sports stars are black? It's because they don't look at them like people. They look at them as forms of entertainment, like an animal. Yeah. Yeah. I can't be racist. I like, I like uh, these, these guys, right? I have a Jersey with this guy's name on it. Yeah. It's, 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 it's the most nonsensical thing ever. You see it a lot in soccer. Like, you know, a player will get racially abused by a fan, by an opposition fan, for example. But like the, the team that that fan supports will have black players. And it's just it's it's just one of the many nonsensical sort of mental blocks of, of racists that I just don't get. But yeah, you know. Well, I don't yeah, tackling racism here, solving that. Yeah, way. I think that's a bit too big for for this podcast. <laughs> Not on episode 21, maybe maybe episode 50. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Actually, you know, it's funny, Adam, you say this kind of growing on you. I, I, uh, every time I watch a new movie that I love, I sort of look at it in my top 100 that I'm, I'm doing this like rolling top 100, you know, and inevitably every time I do that, I sort of re-rank five others because I'm like, oh, actually, no, you know, and every time I do that, this Soleo, Soleo is one of the ones that sort of raises up. I think it, I think it just made my top 30 or, or at least 35. From, from the last two years. Um, but it, I, I kind of, it, it's just, I don't know that there's ever gonna be a film that is so confident and um, like, like makes such a strong declaration from an uh, uh, underrepresented population like, like this. Um, so it, every time I, as, as we talk about it now and as I think about it more, um, yeah, it, it just continues to grow and, and kind of I really I, I really love it. I guess it's, um, uh, anyways, yeah. Confident is a good is a good phrase for this. This is a film exact by a filmmaker who knows exactly what he wants to say. You know, I, I've often I've often sort of made a joke. People on the podcast might know. People definitely in the Discord know that I, I have this running joke with long films. Where I say that if your if your film is in is in the three digits for runtime, you're either saying too much or you don't know how to say what you want to say. <laughs> and uh, this doesn't really apply for this film just from a, from a length perspective, but just more so that this is a film by a guy who knows exactly what he wants to say and how to say it, and he doesn't compromise his vision to do that, and he pulls it off. Yeah. Okay, so we're coming towards the end of the podcast, which, as always, is the section for any other business, just where we want to mention something that we watched recently that we enjoyed and we want to give a shout out to. Um, this week, um, I'm picking a film I watched um, earlier in the week, um, a few days ago now, uh, Roberto Rossellini film called uh, Stromboli, um, named after the island, not the dish. Um, really, really fantastic film. I've always been a fan of Rossellini. I think I talked about him. If it wasn't the last episode, it was the episode before um, where I brought up uh, his war trilogy. Um, yeah. yeah, it was whatever episode we talked about, the Battle of Algiers. I think it was the last episode I uh, brought up Rossellini's war trilogy. Um, Rossellini kind of had an interesting career. Um, I, obviously, 
the neorealist documentary style that he sort of made world famous uh, with his first few films that kind of went out the window a little bit when he met Ingrid Bergman. Um, he started making more classically inclined films. Still, you know, has its sort of moments of the neorealist stuff, especially this film has two really particularly fantastic scenes that are very sort of documentary-esque. Um, but just to give you a basic rundown, this film, this film was the first collaboration between Ingrid Bergman and Rossellini, um, who obviously ended up having, you know, Isabella Rossellini, their their child, and obviously were became a power couple of cinema. Um, but this is the first film they made together, um, which literally came from Bergman writing Rossellini a letter saying how much she enjoyed his films and wanted to work together. And they sort of, this film came from that. Um, the film essentially follows Bergman's character, who's a refugee after World War II, and an Italian fisherman, and they're both in an internment camp. And after they both get out, they sort of fall in love in the internment camp. But when they both get out, they decide to get married, and he's going to bring her home to his to his island where he's from um, to live out a life. And she's expecting this island paradise and Stromboli, the island is anything, but it's a volcanic island is literally a, a, a volcano of an island. So it's very harsh, rocky landscape. The, the, the villagers are all very conservative and they, they look down on her because she's very glamorous and goes around in these sort of dresses and sort of tight shirts and stuff. Uh, and everyone kind of looks down on her because of, you know, just just because she's not very conservative. So she ends up fucking hating the place and sort of starts descending into almost madness, really, because she's sort of trapped there. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of Bergman in this film. And it's kind of funny because like I was looking at this going, geez, Rossellini must have really liked Bergman. And then I like looked at the year it was made and then I thought, no, Bergman must have really liked Rossellini. <laughs> it ended up being the other way around. This is 1950. So this is a good sort of five, ten years before Bergman started to make his sort of Faro films, the one he's, he made on Faro Island that were all very sort of chamber pieces about sort of desolation and mental strife. So, yeah, Rossellini was kind of doing like the proto versions of those films with Stromboli. Um has some incredible scenes where the volcano erupts, which really happened. And they literally filmed the sort of everyone escaping from the island as the volcano eruption was happening. Luckily, there wasn't much devastation caused to the sets or oh. anything. Um, but yeah, like to have the balls to literally shoot this as it was happening with the lava flowing down, and everything like that was pretty awesome. Yeah. And then there's another really horrific scene um, where the fishermen are sort of showing how they catch the fish. And it's literally almost shot for shot the same as one of the Vittorio De Seta short films that I talked about oh, yeah. um, as well uh, on, I believe, the last episode, um, where it's just so brutal how they used to catch these fish um, and, you know, showing them, like, just catching them with hooks and throwing them in. They were all flailing and stuff. Literally the exact same as in the, the, in the Vittorio De Seta short film, which kind of made me feel kind of vindicated, like, like this definitely was a documentary I watched because we're showing the exact same methods in two completely unrelated films. So there must be some truth to this. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, Stromboli, fantastic watch. I don't love all of um, Rossellini's later films, the ones he made with, with Ingrid Bergman. I don't love them all. Um, I like a lot of them, but this one and Journey to Italy, um, definitely two really, really fantastic films. So if you didn't get enough of me recommending Rossellini last time out, here's another recommendation for Rossellini, but 
more of his sort of later, more classical work. I just want to note how much I love when like filmmakers have take these opportunities, like you're talking about the volcano thing. It reminds me a lot of like uh, Master and Commander, where they were using a real ship and there was really like tidal waves going over the ship and they were there to film it, you know, to put it in the movie. I just it's when you have these moments that are almost impossible to fake. It's great when they're on film and stuff like that. So that actually got me really interested in wanting to watch it. Yeah, it's 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 great for that because it just that that particular scene is just so chaotic and almost like apocalyptic. It's. Yeah, it's it's kind of thing like you said. If if the volcano hadn't really gone off and they wanted to show that, it would have been so difficult to make it like not schlocky. Um, so you know the fact that they took advantage of the real event, yeah, it, it was great. Cool. Who wants to jump in next? Um, I can, I can go next. Um, so mine's gonna be a little bit different than what I normally do. Uh, mostly because I hadn't been watching a whole lot this week. Uh, but one idea is a rewatch. It's kind of like a nostalgia trip for me. So I have a hard time distinguishing it if it's actually a really good movie and it was just underappreciated or I just have such rose colored glasses that I can't see the flaws as well. But I re- every once in a while, me and my girlfriend get in the mood to watch A Knight's Tale with uh, Heath Ledger. Uh, it's, one, it's one I've watched like my whole life. Uh, I've always said that it's one of the greatest sports movies ever made because I think it captures the essence of sports incredibly well as someone who loves sports. I think most of the movies are terrible. Like I think they kind of miss the point of what, why people watch them and like the melodrama, because I do think melodrama is kind of part of it. Like, you know, you're taking a kind of an unimportant event and making it a lot more important than it probably should be, which is just kind of sports in general but essentially for anyone who isn't aware of what this movie is it's a movie uh that takes place with a guy who is a peasant who wants to fake nobility so he can joust and basically you know change who he is and you know not have to be a peasant anymore and prove himself um and the whole movie is very anachronistic it uses like queen songs it uses like a big rock album and um it has that nice tone to it like it's it's just it's a lot of fun to watch it's um heath ledger's great in it because you know he was he was just great uh when he was here um he's it's very enjoyable um it's just such an easy film to watch for that sense and um you know and i go and look at like reviews at the time and i'm always kind of surprised that it was not very well liked and it's one of those ones i'd love to try to separate myself from it more so i maybe i could finally like see what was probably seen when it was and it wasn't something i watched a lot as a kid but i never have been able to so you know uh, i recommend it cautionly as a caution thing just because you'll you might see things that uh, i i just can't anymore but that's what that's kind of been the big one i've watched it's been about 10 years since i've seen it and like i remember liking it i don't remember a whole lot about it i remember it having a really good cast um, yeah yeah it's got uh alan tuddick it's got um paul bettany as well as paul bettany it? is uh chauncer um and you know they they do little things like that like the you know one of the characters is the black king which you know nothing was written about him until like a hundred plus years later so it's fun to use him as a character and chauncer there's like a whole year we don't know like what happened to him in history he's there's nothing written about him so the idea is it takes place that's in what that he's doing. That cool. And that's you know, cool. I think it's a cool little thing. It's a nice little detail. 
the, the Black Prince was that was James Purefoy was that character, wasn't he? Yes, yes, he was. Yeah. James Purefoy is awesome. I, I like him. I wish he was in more stuff. Yeah, that's was, what we said when we were watching it too. Like he's never in anything, but he's he's awesome um, he's in he's in this really fun TV series with Kevin Bacon called The Following. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, it got it got like prematurely cancelled, and I was so pissed off because it ended on a cliffhanger. And he, he's so good in that. Um, and then when I when I ended up sort of rewatching this film, then around the same time, I was like, oh shit, it's James Purefoy. <laughs> he's really good though. I wish he was in more stuff. Yeah, he's got he's got a good uh, charisma about him. Even in this movie, yeah, he's only in like gravitas. three or four scenes, and but he carries everyone he's in. Yeah, it's his eyes. You know, he just has. Yeah, he's he's a good actor. You talked about nostalgia. I just saw Swingers again. I showed my wife Swingers for the first time. Have you all ever seen that movie? I actually haven't, no. I have not either. I, no. I, I don't know if it's good. I'd be curious if you all ever see it to see what you think about it. But it's one of those ones. It came out in 96, which was the year I started high school. I kind of, like, I saw that movie probably a hundred times in high school. It's It's dumb kind of humor, but, like, it's just like the kind of there's a scene in it where a bunch of these like mid 20 kind of guys, you know, Vince Vaughn, John Favreau. This is like the movie that kind of launched them a little bit. Um, they're sitting in a room just playing video games and like trash talking each other and like telling saying horrible things to each other. And like, that's exactly what me and my friends used to do. So I don't know. It just it's like very like it was like the perfect movie for me as a 14, 15 year old to discover and kind of like grow up with a little bit. And then I didn't see it for at least 15 years. But we just rewatched it last night, and it and it held up. It held up really well. Um, but it's impossible to separate whether or not it's actually good or not. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the issue I have with the Night's Tale. Like I look at yeah. the reviews, and I'm like, it must be bad or not very good. But I just I'm too connected to it now. I actually had this while we're on the topic of nostalgic watches. I I yesterday obviously I watched the Doors documentary that I mentioned. That's not going to be in the recording. Um, but I also watched uh, Donnie Darko which oh, I also yeah. haven't seen in about 10 years and my girlfriend hasn't seen in about 10 years. And I, I have the Arrow release that I bought like months ago and I've been too afraid to watch it because I like love, that's like one of my formative films and like mm-hmm. for like film, like actually being interested in film as an art form. Die Dark was like, I think it's for a lot of people. It's like one of those sort of early films you watch that's like really good. But I was so scared it was going to suck. And I don't, I didn't love it as much as I did as a teenager but like it's still a really good film and it, it holds up really well i still don't understand 100 percent what happens in the film um i have an inkling but um yeah that's just while we're on the the subject of nostalgic watches yeah donnie darko still holds up and soundtrack is awesome soundtrack with donnie darko every song is a banger i still yeah. quote that scene um where he's like patrick swayze comes to the school and yeah. he just gets up and says, I think you're the fucking Antichrist. Yeah. I that, all the time. that was awesome. Oh, that was so good. <laughs> fucking Antichrist. Um, we should maybe do an episode where we just talk about the movies that like got us into cinema or something. That, that's probably a fun uh, that's probably a fun episode. It's a special yeah, like, one. It'll be the antithesis to our IMDB. Like, oh, they like this shit and they're judging the IMDB yeah. top yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Now to talk about the cultural importance of Space Jam. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> Um, well, I'll make my section as quick as possible. So um, I, I have to talk about, ha- have any of y'all seen The Long Good Friday? I haven't, no. Um, it was it was in my basket on the Arrow sale, and it was one of the ones I took out. Oh, my gosh. Like, the director, John McKenzie, is a very kind of, like, milk toast director. No offense if, if John McKenzie's listening to the podcast. But, like, his career doesn't really have anything that stands out. Uh, like this 
And the writer made like 10 things total, or maybe 12 or something. It's like not many uh, credits, but it's just, they just sort of had this, it's one of these like kind of one hit wonders from music world, you know, where just like everything came together. Bob Hoskins plays a mafia boss, like a crime boss in, in London. And he's coming, he's flying back in because he's about to do the biggest deal of his life. And also one of the biggest kind of deals in Europe for, for some big development. And it, it happens to be on a Good Friday, which is sort of an Easter related um, uh, holiday, right? I think it's a big deal in the, in the UK, at least I think everybody's it's like a national holiday. I don't know. Anyways, but he lands and as he's landing in, there, there's like an intro scene where a bunch of bad stuff happens. It, like uh, you don't really fully understand. You don't have the context for it. And like everything that happens in the first 10 minutes of the movie kind of gets explained as the movie goes on. But uh, basically he just starts having a bad day that goes into a really bad day that ends up into the IRA is after him for a reason he doesn't understand that that ends up into him having to fight the IRA, which is bad. You don't want to do that. Um, and it just, it just descends into this chaos in such a perfect way. And like Bob Hoskins, I don't really know him that I haven't seen him in like so many things, but the guy can straddle sweet and insane. Like very few people I've seen. Uh, there's a couple of scenes where he loses it for just like a split second in the movie. And he's anyways, it's just, his performance is amazing. Young Hill and Mirren is, is amazing. Uh, a lot of the supporting cast is, is perfectly just is perfectly cast. Um, the music is is awesome. And I just think that anybody that likes, like the funny thing is sometimes Criterion gets this reputation of not being populist, right? There's like that kind of tension of like, well, you have to like art house stuff to like Criterion. But this is one of those movies, I think that just any, honestly, anybody that likes like Goodfellas or Casino or like any of those types of crime films, I, I think would be drawn to it's it's so well made and and very good. I'll have to check it out while it's on the channel. Yeah, get it while it's on the channel. It's an out of print DVD without subtitles, so it's kind of a for me it's like a a double whammy. I like I like watching stuff with subtitles, but Criterion Channel has it and uh, Arrow it, have it anyway. Worst case scenario, which you be which you guys being Region B, Arrow has a Region B Blu-ray of it, so worst case scenario you can catch it there. Is Bob Hoskins the guy from? Um, who framed Roger Rabbit? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. The only other film I think I've seen him in. Have you guys ever seen the film Enemy at the Gates? Uh -huh. Yes. That war film. I didn't. I, I used to watch that a lot as a kid growing up. It was one of like it's one of like my dad's favorite films. So like I my watched it a lot. Too weirdly. Yeah, it's 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 a cool it's a it's a fun <laughs> film. You know, uh, there's, there's that especially like the sort of sniper scenes are really well done. But I didn't realize this till I was much older and I rewatched it about how they did, how they skirted around the accents of hiring like British and American actors. Have you guys realized what they do? Mm -mm. All the Russian characters are British and all the German characters are American. Interesting. <laughs> so that's how they get around the whole accents thing. All the, all the Russian characters just speak with their normal British accents. And Ed Harris, who's the German, and all the other German characters speak with their American accents. I've never paid attention to that, but that's, that's yeah. kind of awesome. Next time, <laughs> next time you watch Enemy at the Gates, which I know is on all of our watch lists, um, <laughs> you'll you'll you won't be able to not you won't be able to unhear it. The fact that all all the Russians are all and they're all played by um, I think I'm pretty sure I'm looking at the cast list here, and I'm pretty sure they're all played by either British people or people doing British accents like Jude Law, Rachel Weisz, Joseph Fiennes. They're all British. 
Ed Harris is the main American bad guy, and he or the main German bad guy, and he's obviously American. So our finest, <laughs> our finest Russian and German actors, I guess, right? Yes. Um, and 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 really quick before we end, I have to talk about. So I have to pimp my Fellini ranking. So <clears throat> took me about six months, but I finished going through all of Fellini's films. <clears throat> And there was, I, I think, you know, there's obviously all the films that people kind of talk about when they talk about Fellini. There's all the ones that people love. Um, but there are some ones that really jumped out and kind of surprised me in the best way that I don't hear as much about. So I quickly want to just do, I'll, I'll make this as fast as possible here, but I want to go through the top 10. So eight and a half to me still, like, I don't know. I, it's just sort of speaks to my soul. Like it's, it's a, a tier film. Yeah, it is. And I think it's there for a reason, I guess. Like, I, you know, it, it it's just perfect, like a film about the process of how hard it is to make a film. And it also kind of serves the purpose of Fellini introducing himself as like, he's no longer gonna be constrained in his creativity. Uh, the way that the film ends is sort of like this great ramp to the rest of his career, where he just kind of goes off unhinged, but in that perfect kind of Fellini way that he's able to control. Um, for anybody that likes Wes Anderson, you have to watch And the Ship Sails On. Like, it's just, it, it feels like it could be a Wes Anderson picture today. Like, it just, it, like, it has the same aesthetic. It has the same kind of, like, reality, but slightly artificial tone to the, the, the aesthetics and, and the characters. Um, the humor is very Wes Anderson. It, it feels like, you know, I know, I always know that he was influenced by Fellini, but this one feels like maybe the strongest one, at least visually. Um, he, he remade, uh, well, or I guess he told his version of Satyricon. Uh, which is just insane and brilliant. I think there's probably Satyricon and probably Casanova and then City of Women are probably the three movies where he was his most just uh, unhinged and, and, and unre unrestrained creatively, both in set design and in colors, like uh, palette and in character design and in story, just a huge, like crazy story. Um, Satyricon, he, he called it a science fiction movie, which is an interesting uh approach but it does feel like maybe a a midnight at the movies kind of science fiction film in the way that it's constructed and put together um the dolce vita for me is, is number four which i know some people have higher i just but it, it's a nice companion piece to eight and a half i think to see the dolce vita first and then eight and a half those two together are really nice uh it's, it's a honestly it's kind of a perfect movie like there's nothing really to say wrong about it um no one really talks about orchestra rehearsal, so that's number five for me. It's a story where it starts off as an orchestra practicing together, like kind of preparing for an event, and then descends into the destruction of Western civilization over the course of 90 minutes. Uh, and it's done in a just, yeah, anyways, I'm trying to be fast, but it's beautiful and it's done very well. And it kind of catches you off guard, I think, when you're watching it. It has like kind of a Monty Python feel or a Bunuel feel where it's got that humor throughout of it, like that dark humor kind of throughout and kind of that, that, that surrealism. Um, I really love his most calm, just character driven story. Ivitaloni is number six for me. It's great story of love that one. can't escape a small town. You, what are you yeah. saying? I love that film. It's great. It's probably my number two from the Fellini films I've seen. So good. Love it. Yeah, it's so good. Um, his apology slash sort of love letter to his wife, Juliet of the Spirits, um is, is number seven for me um it's julietta messina typically plays 
very uh, like these kind of wide-eyed, bright, optimistic characters that are having these terrible things happen to her, right, throughout these films. Um, and yet she kind of perseveres and is a strong spirit in spite of these terrible external surroundings. And Juliet of the Spirits, he sort of, it's not about that at all. It's just about the his wife, Julieta Messina, and like her, her journey in this kind of spirituality uh, and, and some of the more uh, occult type of uh, practices that she was, I guess, really into, but it's told in a very Fellini way. Uh, his take on Casanova is number eight. I, I don't really know what to say about this film other than you just have to kind of see it to experience Donald Sutherland as this horny, unhinged Casanova. Um, and the sex scenes are really funny. There's, I don't think there's any nudity in the movie. So it's a very theatrical kind of sex where it, it'd be like two kids that don't really understand sex, pantomiming what sex looks like uh, with fully clothed. Uh, it's just very over the top and eccentric and kind of funny, uh, but the whole movie's nuts. Speaking of Julieta Messina, Knights of Cabirio is number nine for me. I think it's a, it, it's just, it gives me chills thinking about the film and then her performance in it. Um, it's so weird talking about that right after Casanova, but it's just like, it's a, it's a very dark and haunting film that really portrays like the worst in humanity, but she kind of perseveres and there's this really powerful scene as it ends. I won't spoil it, but it, it just the way that music is kind of intertwined into the final scene, you see her spirit restored is one of the more powerful endings I think I've maybe ever seen, but for sure uh, in Fellini's films. And then number 10 is Amarcord. Um, I didn't actually like it the first time I saw it until I saw that it was an allegory for the way that um, um, uh, fascism arrests the development of a civilization and causes them all to end in like this kind of adolescent state. And through that lens, like the movie's perfect. I think it's really, really excellent. And I get what he was trying to do. And uh, and and everybody is very adolescent <laughs> in their behavior. And and I think he's blaming fascism. So that's. Uh, Maybe I'll, I need I'll, to rewatch it then because I didn't. I didn't love it when I watched yeah, it recently. Yeah, reaction. Yeah. That wraps up this week's episode of They Live by Film. If you want to read more of our thoughts, visit theylivebyfilm.com. And you can also follow our Letterboxd, Reddit, and Instagram accounts from the links in the description. For now, take care.